This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 28. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's topic, preventing or obtaining a second deposition of a party. All right, so you're near the end of discovery or maybe close to trial, and the opposing lawyer tells you that they just need an update deposition of your client or witness. What do you do? Do most courts allow it? We know that the federal rules do forbid a second deposition without a court order or agreement by the opposing party, and we know that most state courts are the opposite and don't have rules that specifically forbid more than one deposition. So what do most courts do? Restrictions on the number of depositions or not, what do most judges think about it, and how do they rule? So we'll talk about that in this episode, and at the end of the episode, I'll give you practical pointers on either blocking or obtaining a second deposition. I'll give you a list of the best arguments to make to prevent uh, your client or witness from being redeposed, and the best arguments to make in getting that second deposition of a party or witness. As with all our episodes, the show notes contain the court cases on which the episode is based. For this episode, I think there are 23 cases, plus or minus, that we've listed, all with the full citation and a parenthetical that gives you a blurb as to what the case is all about. It's really a great collection of the best cases on the topic and the most frequently cited cases on the issue of a second depositions. The topic came to mind because one of the lawyers in my office recently received an email from an opposing lawyer's assistant that simply said they needed an update deposition of our client and wanted to know when we were available. So we just need an update. Oh, okay, an update. Well, the federal rules don't recognize the notion of an update deposition. A deposition is a deposition. The same thing with most state court rules on depositions. I don't know of any state that has expressly provided for anything called an update deposition. So what the lawyer is really asking for is a second full-blown deposition of our client. We write back and we ask the lawyer, what exactly do you have in mind? And the reply we got back began with the following. Do you want me to write out all of my questions for you? I'm not going to disclose my protected thoughts and impressions to placate your curiosity. The sole example given in that email to us read as follows. I assume your client is going to seek damages for the time period after her May 2018 deposition, and that is clearly but one ground for an update deposition. And that's all we were told. There was no other suggestion as to what else would be covered. And I can tell you that a number of courts have said that this kind of information, mere damages update, could be gained using interrogatories, document requests, or third-party subpoenas, and that that by itself is generally not sufficient to justify an additional full-blown deposition given the risks. A few days later, we get an email back from the opposing lawyer, this time attaching a notice of taking deposition with no limitations whatsoever in the notice and setting the deposition to begin just two and a half hours before the end of the day on the very last day of the discovery period. Further, this email greatly expanded the list of proposed topics and included this statement. By no means am I restricting my questioning to these specific topics only. So as best we could tell, in no way was this an update deposition. Not only did the notice contain no time or topic restrictions, but the lawyer's last email to us made it crystal clear that there would be no restrictions whatsoever on what he planned to cover. Now, this lawsuit was filed in June 2017. The opposing lawyer took our client's deposition about a year later in May 2018, 
with trial set for April 2021. Discovery closes February 23, 2021. And as I said, the deposition was noticed to begin just a few hours on the last day of the discovery period. So lots of opportunity for mayhem here under these circumstances. When you get a request for a second deposition, especially one characterized as a quote update, it ought to set off alarm bells. If you agree to it without limitation, you've opened the door to a second full-blown deposition of your witness or client. It's the notice of deposition that matters, not necessarily the informal conversations, either verbally or by email, between you and the noticing lawyer. So if you're opposed to a redeposition of your client, in whole or in part, you ought to involve the court in this process, either to block the deposition in its entirety or to impose strict limits, both in terms of scope of the examination and the length of the deposition itself. I can tell you in my practice, there are very few circumstances where I would ever agree to allow an opposing lawyer to redepose my client or a witness I represented. So what's the best way to approach this? Well, you could seek a protective order from the court, or you could enter into, if you're in federal court, you could enter into a Rule 29 stipulation, which relates to discovery agreements between the parties, outlining the scope and duration of the deposition. And if needed, you could present that stipulation to the judge for an order adopting it. And I certainly would recommend that. What I don't recommend you do is leave the matter open to the opposing lawyer's good graces or to assumptions about what's going to happen in that second deposition. And that's because your idea of what an update will consist of is likely to be very different from that of the examiner. And again, there are no rules and to my knowledge, no cases that clearly define the notion of this thing called an update deposition. So if you don't take steps ahead of time to block it entirely or to impose strict limits, then there really are no restrictions on what can be asked. And you've opened the door to the creation of conflicts in the testimony, confusing and repetitive questions that have already been asked, annoyance and harassment. Now, of course, there are rules that say that you can halt a deposition to seek a protective order if the examination in any deposition becomes harassing. But that's a lot hairier concept and a lot more vague than if you sought the restrictions in advance or took steps to block it. I should mention that 100% of the cases that we ran across in our research and that are cited in the show notes involve situations where the court got involved based on a motion to compel a deposition that the examining lawyer wanted or a motion for protective order that the opposing lawyer uh, filed to stop a redeposition. None involved a situation where a lawyer voluntarily allowed the second deposition and then got into a conflict once the deposition was underway. And I credit the lawyers in those cases that we found for thinking about this issue ahead of time instead of simply working off a, a vague notion of what both sides had in mind as to what would be asked. It's something you definitely need to address in advance, head on with the opposing lawyer, and also something I recommend that you involve the court in to get an order of restricting the topics and the duration. Now, obviously, if the lawyer seeking the deposition is someone you've known for a very long time and someone with whom you have an excellent working relationship, maybe this isn't an issue. Some lawyers do exactly what they tell you they're going to do. Some don't. In the circumstance, I almost always seek a protective order to block that second deposition. It's just fraught with danger. And if the court won't block it entirely, I always ask for a range of limitations, strict limitations on the length of the second deposition and on the scope of the questions. Now, 
What did we learn from our research in getting ready for this episode? Well, first, most judges will forbid a second deposition of a witness or party that is scheduled to take place at the last possible moment, almost regardless of the reason. And I define last possible moment here as the very tail end of discovery, especially when the case has been pending for a while or where discovery has already closed and the trial is imminent. Second, those judges that do allow a second deposition almost unanimously forbid the examining lawyer from delving into topics that were already covered or that could have been covered in the first deposition. So if the examining lawyer had the ability to ask questions about the topics or had documents or information at the time available to them, could have gotten them or actually had them and chose not to use them or get them ahead of the deposition, they're generally not going to be able to take that second deposition. Second depositions are generally restricted to examinations about new material changes in the evidence or conditions pertinent to the case. In some of the cases, judges allowed second depositions to inquire, for example, about a party's compliance with a previously entered injunctive order in the same litigation. Sometimes judges will allow second depositions where the pleadings have been amended, raising new material issues that change the landscape of the case. Sometimes judges will allow a second deposition where the lawyer or deponent engaged in misconduct during the prior deposition that obstructed the examining lawyer's ability to effectively take the deposition itself. In some of the other cases, judges allowed a second deposition, allowed a party or witness to be redeposed, where it was clear that someone had concealed or hidden information, which obviously would have prevented inquiry about it during the first deposition. The cases also show that when second depositions are allowed, they are always restricted to just a few hours. I don't think we found any case where a court allowed a redeposition to go more than three hours. And they are always tightly restricted in terms of the subject matter that's going to be covered. We found no cases where lawyers were allowed to delve broadly into old issues, rehash old information, or simply take a second crack at the witness based on information that was available uh, to the lawyer at the time of the first deposition. Third, judges have generally shown an unwillingness to reopen depositions simply for the purpose of learning about mundane information that normally changes over time, such as employment or ordinary medical care. In those situations, the judges generally refuse to reopen the depositions, essentially saying, look to the lawyers, you could get this information in less intrusive ways. You can serve interrogatories on the party. You could serve requests for production. You could serve third-party subpoenas on whoever might have the records that will answer all of those questions. You can take the depositions of other folks who may have the answers that you need, such as a healthcare provider. In other words, what the judges seem to be saying in these decisions rather consistently is this. We understand that in virtually every lawsuit, there's going to be a need to update information after a deposition has been taken. But second depositions are going to be the exception and not the rule. And because you have other alternative tools for discovery available to get this updated information, requests for second depositions are generally going to be denied absent a clear showing of a strong need and the complete lack of alternatives to get the same information and the exercise of due diligence by the requesting lawyer to try and get that information some other way previously in the case. All right, one last point uh, before we talk about some of the factors to argue for and against. And that is the question, who has the burden 
in all of this? Is it the movement who wants the second deposition? Is it the movement that has to show good cause? Or is it the party opposing the deposition seeking a protective order? Must they show good cause for preventing a second deposition? And I can tell you that the courts have split on that, and you'll see that in the Finjan, F-I-N-J-A-N case in the show notes. Some courts say it's the movement seeking the deposition that has to show good cause. Some say it's the party opposing it. Whatever your position, of course, you'll want to research your jurisdiction, but whatever your position, you're going to want to plan on being able to show good cause as the rules define it. So let's jump right into the arguments to make when opposing these requests and when making one. I'm just going to run through these very quickly, and as I've mentioned, they're based on the decisions that we cite. There are about 10 or 15 key points to make if you're opposing a second deposition, and about a similar number when you're trying to take a second deposition of an opposing party or witness. For the most part, you're going to want to think of these points as mirror images of each other, but we've broken them out, points to make when opposing, points to make when seeking, uh, because there are some differences. So arguments to make if you are opposing a second deposition of a client or witness. Argue specific, particularized harm. Not just the witnesses have something else they need to do that day, not just, well, they're employed somewhere and they've got things they've got to do and they need to be at work. You've got to think of specific prejudice. You're on the verge of trial. You're in the last week of discovery. The notion you want to approach this from is that allowing that redeposition at the tail end of discovery is going to open Pandora's box or open a hornet's nest or a can of worms, whatever euphemism you want to use. But you want to point out that allowing that second deposition without an extraordinary showing is likely to open new issues that could have been raised earlier for which you will have no remedy because discovery is closed or closing. Argue prejudice because it was timed, the second deposition was timed to prevent you from conducting follow-up discovery. Argue the lack of good cause by the movement. Argue that this could have been done much earlier, that the movement waited until the last minute, has already covered the topics, either through depositions or other discovery, that this information could be obtained or could have been obtained through third-party subpoenas to employers or healthcare providers. Argue that the movement created its own problem by taking the first deposition too quickly. Point out, if it's accurate, that the movement hadn't served discovery when it first deposed your client, that the movement should have known that there were facts it didn't have, documents it didn't have, and it chose not to wait for certain developments in the case or additional discovery. Argue that the movement should have known that some information would not be available, but took depositions anyway. Argue that the movement made a tactical decision as to the timing of that first deposition and ought to be held to their strategy. Argue that the movement is attempting to create conflicts in the testimony. Argue that the notice contains no limitations and that there's no such thing as an update deposition. That's particularly useful if the examining lawyer has sent emails making informal promises but hasn't put that in the notice. Remember, it's the notice that matters. Remember that neither the federal rules nor normal state rules limit the scope of inquiry in a deposition. So absent a court order, a second deposition is otherwise as wide open as the first. Argue that the case is simple. It's a one-issue case, that there can't possibly be a legitimate reason for a second deposition. Argue that there's been no change in the pleadings, either from the plaintiff's side or the defense side. Argue that there's been no change in applicable laws. Argue that the mere passage of time doesn't constitute a change in circumstances 
and that there are other ways to gather that information. That's from the Tara Crosby case in the show notes. Argue policy. Argue to the court that a ruling that parties are allowed to redepose the adversary just because or based on predictable normal changes in information will open the floodgates and allow lawyers in every case to begin taking multiple depositions of the same witnesses. Argue that the examining party could have easily asked the same questions during the initial deposition and either chose not to or forgot to. Point out that second depositions are not do-overs and the lawyer should not be permitted to ask questions about documents that were already in its possession. Argue that the lawyer should not be allowed to ask questions about topics that have been in the case since its inception. That's the Babcock case in the show notes. Argue that the lawyer should not be permitted to recover topics already covered in the first deposition. That's the MLO, Finjan, Kleppinger, and Babcock case. Argue that the lawyer failed to exercise due diligence in obtaining information before the initial or first deposition, and that this should result in an order denying leave to take another deposition. That's the Lowry and the Kleppinger case. If it looks like the court is going to allow a second deposition, argue that the court should strictly limit the scope to information provided since the first deposition. That's the Echeverria case. If it looks like the court is going to allow a second deposition, ask the court for the right to take additional depositions of your own without further order of the court and based on information that comes out during the second deposition of your client. Ask for that to be part of the court's order. Also consider asking for the discovery deadline to be extended, the trial postponed, or the right to serve additional paper discovery or third-party subpoenas in addition to any additional depositions that you may conclude that you need. Okay, so uh, let's flip to the other side. What should you argue if you are the party seeking to take the second deposition of a witness? In addition to being aware of what the opposing side has argued and being ready to make the flip side of those arguments, here are some additional points to make. Argue if it applies that the opposing party failed to produce discovery, either on a timely basis or at all. Argue that you did not use all of your available time during the first deposition and that you would simply like the court to allow you to go back in and use the remaining allotted time under the rules if you're governed by Federal Rule 30's uh, seven-hour limit. Argue that you used every available minute of your allotted deposition time, but that because of the complexity of the case, perhaps because of objections or breaks, that you simply could not reach certain topics in the case in the first deposition. Propose, in seeking a second deposition, that you will limit the amount of time in your subsequent examination to a set duration. Argue that the information you seek cannot be obtained through less intrusive means, such as document requests or interrogatories. Argue that your opponent, in seeking to block the deposition, has failed to make a good faith, particularized showing as to why their witnesses should not be deposed. No one wants to be deposed. Everyone has somewhere else to be. So that bare claim, without a specific showing of actual prejudice associated with the party's need to return to a deposition room, should go nowhere. Argue if it applies that the opposing lawyer's conduct or the deponent's conduct in the first deposition was disruptive, improper, and that it impeded a fair examination. That's the Gorsone case. Argue that the pleadings have been amended, either by the plaintiff or by the defendant, and that there are now new issues in the case that you had no reason to evaluate and examine in the prior deposition. 
argue that you need to evaluate the deponent's credibility, something that simply cannot be done through paper discovery. Argue that new information has come to light, triggering questions that you would have not thought to ask at the first deposition. Maybe you've obtained new documents that you previously simply didn't have access to or could not timely get. Perhaps you have new information contradicting the testimony previously given by the deponent. Argue that you've provided new documents and information to the opposing side that is likely to inform the opponent's views and testimony and that you'd like an opportunity to take a second deposition to assess the opponent's testimony in light of the new information. If applicable, argue that a court ruling on a motion to dismiss or motion for summary judgment or maybe a motion in limine has substantially altered the complexion of the case. Maybe there were five different claims in the case and maybe now there's just one. Well, if you're operating under the federal rules seven-hour limit, that means that you likely had to divvy up your time, not necessarily equally, but still had to divvy it up to account for coverage as best you could of all five claims, and that you'd like to delve a little bit further into the one remaining claim, which you certainly would have done in much greater detail if that had been the only claim in the case from the outset. Finally, consider arguing, if it applies to you, that you are essentially forced to take the opposing party's deposition out of sequence because other critical witnesses were, for whatever reason, unavailable, and that in light of the testimony now obtained from those other witnesses, you would like a brief additional deposition of the opposing party uh, to address those issues that have now surfaced. All right, that's it for this episode. Interesting topic. Once again, thank you for listening, and be sure to check out the book that this podcast is based on, 10,000 Depositions Later, The Premier Litigation Guide to Superior Deposition Practice, available on Amazon and just about everywhere else you get your books.